Take a network break. Join us for virtual donuts and quick conversation about the latest tech news. We're going to cover a new Palo Alto firewall, cyber insurance, a new zero trust offering, space networking, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed. Your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks are hosting an exclusive online event on May 24th and 25th, so you can see how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event or see the show notes for Network Break episode 429. Uh, and then stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with sponsor Nokia and how it's bringing 800 gig Ethernet routing with its innovative FP5 silicon. Uh, and just a quick reminder that the first episode of Heavy Wireless has dropped. This is a brand new show dedicated to all things wireless with host Keith Parsons. Episode one's all about the upcoming Wi-Fi 7 standard, otherwise known as 802.11BE. Uh, Keith and his guest David Coleman dig into new features to help you decide if and when to upgrade. And we're going to release new episodes every two weeks. You can subscribe for Heavy Wireless at packetpushers.net. And just note, you have to subscribe separately. A lot of people who listen to Network Break and Heavy Networking are connected to what we call our full feed, which has just the top five shows or has five shows that were historically everything that Packet Pushers did. And of course, as we add more shows to the network, uh, we found that people are saying there's too much content and stop engaging with it. So we are more or less forced to split up the feeds to some extent. We're going to leave the full feed alone for the time being, but just be aware that you may be better off over time resubscribing to each channel separately because I think in the long term that uh, single channel will pass away, I think. There are other reasons to do with uh, analytics and data as well. Not, we're not privacy busting, but we do need to know how many people are listening to each channel individually and we may end up having to go that way eventually. So. Yeah, so just if you are interested in Heavy Wireless, you can uh, just find it on packetbusters.net and listen to individual episodes or subscribe uh, individually and you'll mm -hmm. get it into your favorite podcatcher. Yep. And it's only coming out every two weeks, so we promise not to hit you too much with, with the wireless content. Yeah. All right, let's dive into the news. Palo Alto Networks has announced a cloud-based firewall for Microsoft Azure. The firewall can be deployed within the Azure cloud via the Azure Marketplace and can be managed using either Palo Alto's Panorama management software or via the Azure portal. Uh, it's a next-gen firewall. It's also got malware protection, UR filtering, DNS security, and more. Yeah, not much to say here. I think this is a fairly simple product move. Palo Alto is moving their firewall infrastructure onto Azure for people who are using Palo Alto's Panorama, which is their cloud operations. If you have an existing data center with Palo Alto you know, firewalls, hardware firewalls deployed there, if you're running Palo Alto's SD-WAN architecture, if you're moving into their branch networking capabilities, that's all going to be managed from the Panorama offering, which is that. And so if you start having hybrid cloud where you start moving something into Azure or AWS, we don't want to suddenly have to treat that differently. You don't want to use Azure Firewall well, you don't want to have to treat it as a standalone. You want to use it as as unified. And so that's the angle I see here. Not much to see. They've just managed to produce a virtual appliance or work with Azure to package it up in a way that Microsoft demands, you know, a proprietary bundling of products from these vendors so they can control them and invoice for it. And so this then just goes off and talks to Panorama and then so on and so forth. So that was what I took away from it. Did you get anything different? Uh, no, my assumption was that you could always run a virtual instance of a Palo Alto network firewall in Azure, but you had to sort of, you know, get the VNet and then set it up yourself. This is now integrated with the, it's an Azure native ISV service. So it's integrated with the whole Azure infrastructure and it's in the marketplace. You can just click a few buttons and it sets up, uh, I guess, apparently Palo Alto networks is going to manage scaling and software updates for the cloud firewall on your behalf. Uh, you can deploy mm. them in an Azure VNet or in Azure's virtual WAN hub. Yeah. So you've got to be Azure... Azure's proprietary format for presenting appliances, basically. Yeah. 
And there are advantages to that. As it says, you know, Palo Alto will go and do the scaling and do some software updates because Azure wants to enable that to justify their reason for existence instead of just saying, why don't we keep this simple? And um, But hey, you know, it's all a trade-off. Hybrid clouds are pain and it's all proprietary as usual. But the main thing here is that once you've got it, unified all the way across. You don't have to try and jiggledy-piggledy them all into operating them as separate items. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's currently available as a preview, so if you are a Palo and Microsoft customer, you want to check it out. Pharma giant Merck stands to get a $1.4 billion insurance payout after an appeals court ruled that the insurance companies couldn't use an act of war clause to deny the claim. Uh, Merck was hit by the not pet your ransomware back in 2017. The attack, effect, the attack infected tens of thousands of the company's computers and shut down production. When the company filed its insurance claim, however, the insurers denied it, saying that because the malware came from Russia and was associated with Russian attacks against Ukraine in 2017, they could invoke an act of war clause that meant the insurers didn't have to pay. Merck sued them, took them to court. They've now won two court cases saying uh, this this clause does not apply in this case. Yeah. Now, the, there's lots of mechanics and details in here. So, And I think it's important to understand this because if you're going to work in with cybersecurity on top of your infrastructures and your IT infrastructure generally, you're going to, the, the way the case played out and literally the wording in the insurance in 2017 when Merck took it out actually left it so that the burden of proof on the act of war was on the insurer to show that the exclusion was applied. And so the insurance company had to go to court to say, this was an act of war and we have to prove that it was one. However, there was obviously no declared war. It was most likely a piece of malware that came from Russia and the burden of proof to try and prove that it was a military piece of malware seems to be not really... Um, capable, and then the judge said uh, that Merck's insurers, those named in the suit included Alliance and Zurich, can't claim the war exclusion because the language is meant to apply to an armed conflict. Now, 2017, not an armed conflict, right? You, you don't cyber, right? You know, security attacks like this just weren't definable as as conflict. So, um, the, I did some more researching and rattling around the network trying to find out more about this. Um, this exclusion is not going to apply again in the future. So the Lloyd's Market Association, Lloyd's is the um, reinsurance industry. So behind every insurance company like Alliance and and Zurich, they take a portfolio of money and then they try and find somebody to reinsure all or part of that, right? So in, this, in essence, most insurance companies are actually banks. And the real people who take the risk is actually the Lloyd's consortiums. And a bunch of people, rich people, basically take hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, put them in a pot, and then Lloyds and goes and says, well, we guarantee X number of insurance claims against that, and hopefully they make a profit for doing nothing, just for having money. Mm-hmm. And so since then, the Lloyds as an institution have changed the wording and clauses, and there's now four new clauses that must be set out into insurance policies for the Lloyd groups to give reinsurance um, support. And now the level of cover provided for cyber operations between the states which are not excluded by the definition of war, cyber war, or cyber operation. So what we're seeing, of course, here is they wrote an insurance policy thinking that you know that an exclusion for war activities would be good enough. It wasn't because the, in the law, armed conflict means physical conflict, and now they've rewritten the clauses to say anything and to get themselves out of it. So where does that leave us? I don't know, Drew. What do you think? 
I think it leaves us with the fact that, you know, cyber insurance is going to continue to get more expensive as insurers realize, wow, customers are really bad at protecting themselves and we should not have written this policy. Uh, and we'll look to add more clauses and, and get out of jail cards for themselves. So if you are getting into cyber insurance, yeah. make sure you have very good lawyers to go over every inch of that contract. And, you know, the obligation will certainly now be on Merck to present, you know, companies like Merck. If you're not going to get a $1.4 billion insurance payout next time your company gets wiped by a piece of you know, ransomware. Now you've got 1.4 billion reasons to make sure that your security is enough to protect you reasonably against ransomware, which is one of the things that I've been saying for a long period of time. At least in cybersecurity, you have to achieve a certain level of security so you can reasonably stand up in a court of law and say, I did everything that I could do and I was conforming to best practice, pay me. Right. And I think this is a, is a clear case of that in action. Yeah, I also am hoping that the fact that cyber insurance is now essentially, you know, coming off the table because it's just going to get really expensive and, and difficult to, to get claims yeah. that uh, companies who are struggling with security will start to demand that the their technical providers also bear some responsibility when there are attacks because, you know, Merck does obviously has some responsibility to protect itself, but we've been letting the, the, the vendors off the hook for far too long. Software vendors, hardware vendors, they've they've essentially had a free pass that that's just not tolerable anymore in today's environment. No, I think eventually you're going to have a situation where the, there's going to be a major outage. Uh, the, comp the customer is going to look for a someone to be liable and the insurance companies aren't going to pay and they may actually start turning around and suing security vendors for incompetence. You know, if your security product doesn't do even the most minimum of stuff or your supply chain is bad, I think, you know, within the next five years or so, I think we'll see a court case around that, testing out that sort of theory, which I think, you know, be interesting to watch that one play out. Of course, uh, Merck would have spent a lot of money. This is a five-year lawsuit, um, but you know, 1.4 billion reasons to pursue it to its bitter end. Absolutely. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, HPE has announced a plan to simplify the various brands in its portfolio. The company is going to go down from 29 product brands and services to six general buckets, including compute, supercomputing, storage, and networking. Oh, finally, I think I think we talked about this recently that HPE feels much more like a food court with 29 separate, you know, stalls of food and you can go and pick whichever one you want. Whereas really what mm -hmm. you want is six aisles in a supermarket is, is the metaphor I had in my mind. And, you know, if you want to buy a compute, you go to the compute aisle. There might be a number of products in the compute aisle, but you don't want to have to go to like five or six different, you know, places in the food court right. to assemble your lunch. Right, right, right. Right. So, yes, exactly. And I think this will be good internally for HPE. It'll ratify a lot of the things like sales teams, into specific narrower teams and it'll also smooth the interdisciplinary, right? Because HPE, of course, is pushing very heavily on the Green Lake and the Esmeral. It doesn't, no longer sees itself like uh, like some other vendors. A lot of other vendors are not. They see itself as offer, its main product that it's going to market with is Green Lake. You buy a private on-prem cloud from them. And Green Lake includes mostly on-prem, but also starting to include off-prem. So if you want to buy your hybrid cloud or AWS or Google, you can. I think that you'll eventually be able to buy that through GreenLake and they'll be your single point of contact. We've seen Dell's Apex, they're making a huge push on that internally. They're not marketing it externally. Uh, they're marketing it purely by sending salespeople out to customers. It's not a very good offering at this stage. Apex is sort of like, we've got all these products, we'll put them into arbitrary bundles and you should buy them. And they're not, it's not unified like Esmeral and GreenLake is very much a it's not just here's the hardware, it's also software and services and backups and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. A couple of things I noted in this was that uh, uh, given the importance of Aruba in our edge to cloud portfolio, 
We'll take special care to bring them into our new brand architecture. I don't really get why the Aruba brand is special. Do you have a feeling that it is somehow greater than HPE and should not be sublimated into the mainstream? I'm not sure that Aruba is actually special or unique um, and there's no reason why they should not want to be part of the greater HP. That feels weird to me. I mean, I guess uh, way back in the day when HPE acquired Aruba, it felt like there was, uh, I had heard things that Aruba sort of wanted to maintain its own identity, its own culture, its own brand, because it felt like it was, it was special and important. And I think the Aruba CEO became the HPE CEO. So there may have been some of that, you know, carryover. Yeah. So I think this is probably just HPE saying, no, you're, you're an HPE company now and get used to it. And uh, yeah, you're a little bit unique and and, and join us. (laughs) You might be the bright star in the classroom, but really you're not that unique. You're just you know, uh, sort of thing. Um, but I do want to, you know, highlight that Aruba does have excellent products. I'm not negative on Aruba in any way. Very strong position with customers in the campus and with SASE particularly. Uh, the data center networking is very weak, which we've ho- talked about before. It's securely po- security portfolio is incomplete. I mean, they have SASE and SSE to some extent, but uh, really that's not. And the one thing that I noted is that they're not going to do this immediately. It's not like everything changes tonight. Um, they're going to do it over three years, which um, took me a little while to twig. Why would you do that? That's sort of like a slow train crash into this new future, if you know what I mean. And I realized yeah. it's just cheaper. You don't have to sort of like do a rebrand and then go out and do an advertising campaign and tell your customers about this new. If you just do it slowly, then customers have time to notice these changes organically and there's no need to have a, you know expensive campaign. And HP is a bit short on the cash. It is a much smaller company now than what it used to be. Strong branding, and it's doing a good job of turning around to being something, I think, something unique in terms of a, a, as a brand vendor. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's probably not a bad way to go and let it happen organically probably makes sense in the current market. To me, it feels a, a little bit like sort of rearranging the deck chairs or redrawing the organizational chart. Uh, but if they can do things to make the buying process simpler for customers, that that's great for customers and for HPE because you don't want to have, you know, you, you don't want to be able to not get out of your own way in, in selling to customers. So if, if this reorganization actually helps them, that's great. Uh, yeah, all I want to see HPE side, look I, like a, a unified organization. I don't want to look like 29 different companies, you know, <laughs> what is it, 29 right. raccoons in a, in a suit. You know, trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to so sell you I, a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, like a salesman with twenty nine raccoons in a suit, sort of trying to sell you something. I think this makes sense, and I, I think it's a positive move overall. And I almost missed it; it's from a month ago. So, uh, if you're wondering why you haven't heard it this week, that's why. But I still think it's I important I, to bring it up. I'm, I'm going to push on that metaphor a little bit. I'm not, I'm not sure how six raccoons is better than twenty nine raccoons because I'm not. I don't know why raccoons got in here anyway. But yeah, okay. If they can simplify, <laughs> make it easier, we're all good. <laughs> It's all right. <laughs> uh, the network service provider Lumen has announced it's providing 400 gig IP transit points across its backbone networks in the U.S. and EMEA. The company's targeting hyperscalers, content providers, ISPs, and gaming companies. 400 gig for an internet backbone, so you can actually interconnect with Lumen at 400 gig. That's pretty good. Um, you know, my theory is that more bandwidth is just more bandwidth, and you should never have to worry about quos. But if you're talking about 400 gig IP transits on a backbone. Your SD-WAN is going to perform better than that lousy private backbone that most of these companies have, right? Because that backbone is usually the part which gets congested and locked up. I would doubt very much that many of the private networks that these companies have actually have 400 gig uh, interconnects in their backbone, so that's useful. Um, I did take me a while to twig to this that Lumen is actually a rebrand of CenturyLink, um, and mm-hmm. as a general rule, a rebrand 
goes off in my head, a little light goes off and goes like something, a rebrand normally means that you've offended or abused customers to the point where you have to change the name of the company to try and put it behind you. And that's exactly what's happening here. CenturyLink did have a very poor reputation, had several significant outages um, and showed a, a fairly staggering level of incompetence in fixing them. So it's sort of interesting that they're now upgrading their infrastructure to reach 400 gig IP transit. I would wonder if anybody out there who's listening has an opinion on Lumen one way or the other, whether the rebranding of CenturyLink into Lumen has actually turned it into something uh, worthwhile. Like how they have, they turned themselves around and fixed their organizational problems. Let me know. Packetpushes.net slash FU for the follow-up. Yeah, please do. Uh, moving on, the U.S. White House has announced new actions it's taking to promote responsible innovation in artificial intelligence in the United States. Uh, there are legitimate issues with AI, including things like algorithmic bias, false or misleading information generated by tools like ChatGPT, the use of AI to spread misinformation and create deepfakes, exploitative labor practices in AI development, and concerns over workers being replaced by AI. So I guess to help address these concerns, the White House has announced actions including a $140 million investment for the National Science Foundation to pursue ethical, trustworthy, and responsible advances in AI, draft policy guidelines from the Office of Management and Budget on the use of AI systems by federal government and an independent commitment from big AI players to participate in a public evaluation of AI systems at an upcoming DEF CON conference. It's uh, super interesting that the government, the US government particularly, has actually decided to react to this, what is fundamentally an early stage technology to the point in the, in the past, like 10 years ago, if you had said, oh, look, a new technology has been announced and the government will notice within six months of it being reaching the market, that would have been like, no way, <laughs> if you know what I'm right. saying. And yes. so, but it is still early in the AI technology cycle to know how much change will be forced onto normal people in normal society. Now I'm using, that's a, that's a gross metaphor to sort of describe the mass of people out there who probably only know AI from headlines and, and futzing around in chat GPT to do something silly. Um, but one role of political government is to care for society at large and to watch out for too much change that creates disruption because disruption leads to civil unrest. Many people get hurt. Systems fail, like supply chains can fail. Getting milk to supermarkets can fail, that sort of stuff, right? So uh -huh. in this case, I think the technology people have gotten ahead of themselves. They've gotten far too carried away with how clever they are. And instead of thinking about carefully marketing this and bringing out slowly and bringing the bringing the world along with them. They just sort of put it out there and it blew up like a massive bomb and lots of things are just mm -hmm. broken. We saw a, a company in the US, Chegs, which I've never heard of, but it does some sort of online education. And because it must tell the, the SEC uh, of risks to its business, it put into its latest financial report uh, that it believes AI is a threat to its business model and the share price fell 50%. There's no AI wow. on them or whatever, right? Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I was offering lower-level Cisco training right now, like CCNA, CCMP, or any sort of low-level training, I would not want to be running a business in that market because I do think AI is going to be able to produce a course that you can sit through, an interactive you know, course that you can go through with a combination of text and you know, training videos and so forth, and then ask you questions afterwards, and they'll be able to pass them. I think most of the entry-level training that we do for so-called professional development in IT will actually be replaced by AI. And I think that's a far more, um, you know, instead of having to go to an approved training venue like VMware forces you to go to a blessed training program, just use their AI, right, in an interactive mode. So it's not surprising to me that governments are reacting to this to control AI. And I think the challenge here is that technology startups are unreasonably willing to ignore the damage 
unreasonably willing to say there's a bigger society here, they're just going to push forward until somebody gets in their way. And what's interesting is that governments have actually realised this and are moving early to cut them off. And that's a real turnaround for us as IT professionals. Well, I wouldn't say moving to cut them off because uh, all the things I outlined, 140 million investment in the National Science Foundation to pursue ethical, trustworthy, and responsible advances in AI, you, you put that against the 10 billion alone that Microsoft has invested in open AI to, to jam GTP in its products. That's, that's a pittance compared to the amount being spent uh, and the yeah. velocity with which uh, these AI tools are being released to the general public. So I see it as a shot across the bow, Drew, right? If you don't start thinking carefully about censoring conforming to societal norms, being responsible, protecting children, you know, whatever it is, we are yeah. coming for you, right? And this is the first step in that direction. I think it's important that the government is signaling that, hey, mm. ethical and responsible and trustworthy AI is a concern of ours because it should be. It also should be a concern of these companies, but it's not because they want to make the money first yeah. and, and get the market share first. So yes, it's, it is up to the government to fire that shot across the bow. In this but- case, it's just the US government, but- all of the other governments are doing the same. So the EU and each of the yeah. regional governments in the European Union, the British government's doing the same thing. And I'm pretty sure most of the other countries in the rest of the world um, that have the time and resources to do this sort of thing are also um, triggered and are showing saying the same things. Yeah, I, I, it's it's one of those early steps. I don't know how much teeth it has. I'm thinking very little, but it's still early days. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm just sort of uh, not confident in the government's ability to get its arms around this. Uh, yeah, I'm not confident either. In but any reasonable time frame. It's, it's, it's a bit like when a wild animal smiles at you and then suddenly you realize it's going to bite you. That's more what I'm thinking. Right. You know, it starts small. And then if you don't pull it in and start doing things that are... Are the correct way to go forward to slow down, give society time to catch up, then you're going to see the teeth come out and it's going to be fairly brutal. We don't want that, basically. I don't want that. Yeah, I, I, I guess I feel like the horse isn't just out of the barn. It's it's out of the barn. It's burned down the barn and now it's running through the streets, biting people. And the government's just like, <laughs> how do we feel about horses? I, th- I think horses should be nice. We should have nice horses. <laughs> Drinking moonshine and so. beating up everybody and taking <laughs> and stealing taking their wallets, <laughs> taking their lunch money. <laughs> uh, anyway, link in the show notes if you want to read it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branch has changed. Your SD-WAN should too. You can join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers well. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. So join SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks for this exclusive online event, and you can see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to xdxcentral.com to get this link to the free event or see the show notes for Network Break episode 429. And we thank Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Uh, Moving on, Versa Networks has announced a zero trust network access offering that can be used to control user access for remote workers and workers in the office. They're calling it Versa Zero Trust Everywhere. Uh, There's two elements to this. The offering includes zero trust premises. It's an appliance for branch and remote offices to handle access to applications running in your corporate data center or private cloud. There's also Versa Software Defined LAN. It targets the corporate campus. And I think it's also using that appliance and enforcing zero trust for users, devices, and applications on your corporate campus. Yeah, and this was a couple of things here. One is um, that Versa is an SD-WAN company. So, you know, our thesis is that adding zero trust to an SD-WAN product is not very difficult because all the SD-WAN companies did. So, you know, if any company comes out and- Or at least said they did. Yeah, well, 
there is degrees of compliance and, and product excellence, but hey, whatever. What I didn't right. uh, tweak to was that they'd actually done the software-defined LAN. You'll remember I've been saying for a couple of years now that the idea that the campus network is untru- is trustworthy is going away, and you'll actually see the campus LAN basically become an access to the internet, and some sort of zero-trust technology will la- layer over the top of it. And the idea that you know you will have you know a, a campus LAN with firewalls everywhere is, is rapidly going away. Um, it will take 10 years for the market to catch up because if you've got a campus network and it's working and you don't want to fix it, it's not going to change. But Versa has a really interesting business model, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this. It's an SD-WAN company that uses what I call indirect sales. That means vendors and telcos are rebadging Versus products and then building their own solutions out of them. So vendors are most often working in vertical markets like industrial on-site factories, industrial networks, healthcare providers who embed Versa inside of a larger solution. And the reason that that is a success is because brand companies, you know, your Cisco's and your Juniper's, are very difficult to partner with if you want to embed their solution inside of your product. Um, They don't, those companies are inherently like, oh, we're Juniper, you should know us, you know, I'm Cisco, I'm I'm the, you know, the 80-pound gorilla in the room. And then every time they partner with somebody, they're always getting in the way of the other people. And um, they have, and they, even when they get involved, they then have to appoint resellers as middlemen. They have to set up complex supply chains. The sales process becomes very messy because the salesperson wants to get shadow credit for everything that this other company has sold. Do you know what I mean? And the reseller mm-hmm. wants to get a slice of the, you know, and it all gets very, very messy. So um, Versus managed to cut a slice out of that. And um, it's just interesting to see that that's actually a viable market going up against all the other companies in the SD-WAN space. Um, and they haven't died yet. So there. I do think also that Versa is correct in that there is a kind of a disconnect in, in the zero trust network access and that it initially seemed to be focused on remote workers. But then if you come into the office part of the time of the week, then you're, you're on an old system. And so they are, I think, uh, identifying a problem that uh, does need to be solved. I think other folks are also talking about this. I think Fortinet also has a similar option. I could be wrong about uh, being able to yeah. apply zero trust both on-prem and off-prem. Um, but yeah, so I think the need is there. And I also think traditional solutions like NAC are only half the approach. Um, well, NAC's fine if you make... own the network, right? But if you're trying to deploy right. you know, a new X-ray suite inside of somebody else's network, you've got to build your own campus land on top of somebody else's campus land. So right. you actually need solutions that just say everything's zero trust, take it from there. And that's where a lot of these other vendor solutions, it assumes it's the substrate. Like Cisco's DNAC in the campus assumes that everything's a Cisco switch and it's got all of these proprietary, if it's not Lisp, it's EVPN, and it uses proprietary hardware acceleration and so on and so forth. It's not necessary, but it's the way that they've chosen to take it to market. And in this case, this technology is saying, well, no, we're just going to be on top of someone else's network or maybe we build a little network inside of a net, you know, inside of someone else's. We need to be able to know and secure ourselves with the assumption that everything's untrusted. So if you're building a, f- a factory LAN and maybe you're in the corner here with a machine that punches out dooberries, but right, you're surrounded by a whole range of other machines that are punching out wingwongs and goose's bridles. You don't want to, you know, you have to not trust them if you're providing a service. You need to be guaranteed that it's going to work. Yeah, I guess my point was that, you know, NAC is okay for, uh, you know, controlling access to a port, but once you're on the network, you're on the network. And then if you're 
going from that network out to a cloud app, uh, NAC isn't really doing anything in, in regards to that mm. that level of access control. So there is a need, I guess, if you're really concerned about this for deeper levels of integration with the user, the device, and the application. Mm. So it uh, looks like Versa is taking a stab at that. I would love to, maybe we can reach out to them and get a briefing because I'm curious to see how they're actually implementing this mm -hmm. uh, on-prem yeah. uh, and, and what hardware they're using. So if we uh, do get any more details, we will let you know. All right, we're going to wrap up uh, with some space networking. Reuters is reporting that Canadian ISP Rogers Communications is partnering with SpaceX on a service to connect mobile phones to satellites. Uh, 4G and 5G mobile phones will be able to send SMS messages using the satellite service in areas without sufficient mobile wireless coverage. You know, the more I think about this, the more pointless I think this actually is. SpaceX is teaming up with a telco. Great, fine. Mm -hmm. But Apple's doing it directly from the iPhone to the satellite provider. So what's Rogers doing? Like, is it just enabling Android phones to do this? So, I mean, I still can't get over the fact that a, that a mobile phone can send texts to a space satellite, right? Low bandwidth, you know, sort of a, a data squirt, if you like. But with yeah, with fundamentally no changes to your to your hardware is what they seem to be saying. You know, we don't have any details about. I mean, SpaceX hasn't even got this technology, but it's out there selling it so that it can justify more fundraising, right? And justify its Starlink mm -hmm. network and all that sort of stuff. Fine. No problems with that. You know, those companies that Elon Musk leads tend to say a lot of things and then deliver part of it eventually, maybe. And, but the point here is that if you've got an iPhone, I don't need SpaceX or Rogers. So what's the game here? I can't quite work that out. So I've got questions. I've got questions and I've got no answers. Yeah, there were no details about any hardware or software requirements on the mobile phones or about the cost of the service. Uh, it's expected to launch in 2024. Uh, news reports say they are there are plans to expand from text to voice and data, but no details on when. Uh, and I will note that Starlink announced a similar deal with T-Mobile in the U.S. in 2022, so I think there is interest in here. Uh, and I, yeah, you're right that Apple also announced they could do it directly, but not everybody has an Apple phone, so that's that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, and two, uh, yeah, I'm curious to see where this goes. But there is uh, obviously a need for it. Mm. <clears throat> there are huge areas of the U.S. and and Canada, uh, where there isn't good coverage. So, you know, at the very least, being able to send an emergency text is great. Uh, and I think yeah. that's a very useful... Instead of having a separate... A great use case for a satellite system, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, instead of having a VHF radio and reporting in or, you know, calling for help or and having right, some or other... Carrying sort of, around a satellite phone. Yeah, yes. or emergency transponder of some point. This is going to be, you know, quite a game changer for the mid-market. Maybe not the high-end market. They'll still have other technologies. But, um, but still, you know, again, why would I... Why would I do it with Rogers? If this is a killer feature for me, I'd just use my iPhone. <laughs> it's free, right? Yeah, but, <laughs> yes, but I don't have an iPhone, so I guess I have to depend on Rogers if I'm Well, in it's about time you did. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> if you want the space texts, you'd have to get the fan, you know, get the iPhone. I guess I, I kind of do want space texts, yes. <laughs> Probably be the closest I get to space. <laughs> my yeah, text will go, not me. <laughs> Mostly my idea of a sp of space is going to the bathroom and closing the door, but, you know, each to his own. <laughs> each to his own. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stick around for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia, talking about 800 gig. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking with Nokia about 800 gig Ethernet. And in this sponsored show, it's going to support the fact that I've said many times across multiple podcasts on the Packer Bushes Network that high-speed Ethernet in 2023 is almost like magic. When you're talking about 800 gig Ethernet, you're talking something like nanoseconds for an Ethernet frame to arrive on the interface and the next one to arrive. There's just some amazing science going on at this level 
of the technology stack. And Nokia, very generously, said, why don't we talk about that a little bit and then how that impacts people and how some of Nokia's products address the challenges and, and take advantage of the advances in 800 gig Ethernet to make your life better. Joining me today is Igor Giangrossi. He is a Senior Director of Consulting Engineering at Nokia, actually focuses on the web scale segment, which is that weird group of people, which is that's fine for web scale, but not necessarily for others, which is where 800 gig is going to be. So Igor, let's start off with the first question. 800 gig routing is already deployed and demand is growing for it. Why are people going to 800 gig? What's the driver for them to get into it so quickly? Sure. And uh, first of all, thanks for having me here. Glad to be here. Um, so I think there are three main reasons why people want to look or are looking at 800 gig. Um, and these are, in a nutshell, bandwidth growth, power consumption, and space. Um, if we go through all of these, uh, in terms of bandwidth growth, you can pick your own prediction. Uh, there's mm -hmm. many out there. Uh, but roughly, we say that bandwidth grows about 30% year over year. Let me let me just question that. So what we've seen this year particularly is the, the emergence of AI. Now, that's more of a subset of high-speed networking. It's not really that AI is going to drive 800 gig, or is that not true or only partially true? So AI is a little bit of a different case because mm -hmm. it typically gets um, – uh, deployed inside a data center. And mm. uh, you typically put a cluster of uh, very high-speed compute nodes. These compute nodes, most of the time, mm. uh, use 200 gig uh, network interface cards. And then you build a big cluster where uh, these uh, algorithms, these learning algorithms uh, run. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they definitely can uh, and are um, uh, taking advantage of higher speed uh, interconnection. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we also see a lot of that demand in the internet backbone itself. So we're right. seeing demand from uh, service providers, just uh, normal CSPs. We're seeing um, very good demand from um, internet exchange. So we actually have a few internet exchanges uh, that have already deployed uh, 800 gig with us. Um, I can mention a few of them. So mm -hmm. DKIX is one of them. Um, NLIX is another one. And uh, all of those uh, IXs, they are going to 800 gig because of those three uh, points that I mentioned earlier, which are bandwidth growth, uh, space savings, and also power consumption, which is becoming more and more a bottleneck as we grow the density of these platforms. Um, so not only power consumption for the uh, boxes themselves, but actually for the pluggables uh, that goes uh, in into those boxes. All right, we're going to drill into all those topics because I've made some notes here, but I, the interesting thing for me is you're actually saying that we're actually seeing live deployments today of people moving from 100 gig to 200 gig to 400 gig and now to 800 gig in the WAN. And that is literally saying that if there's existing fiber in the ground, they can just clock more onto it. Is that how it's working or is it um, some, other, some other aspect I don't understand? No, yes, absolutely. So uh, you can uh, reuse uh, the same fibers that you were using before for either 100 gig and uh, 400 gigs to go to 800 gig. Mm. And uh, the savings come not only in using less fibers for more bandwidth, uh, but also, as I mentioned, uh, some of the 800 gigi pluggables give us uh, power savings in terms of, uh, well, from 30 to 40%. Uh, compared to either uh, eight by hundred or two by four hundred, so uh, uh, let, me, let me just let me just check this. You're not saying that eight hundred gig uses less power than one hundred gig. You're saying eight hundred gig uses less power than eight by one hundred gigs. 
Yes, from a pluggable perspective, yes. Yeah, uh, right. So the yeah. relative power consumption will certainly go down. Yeah, you, you're not only you avoiding multiple SFPs, each one drawing, you know, nearly 100 watts per SFP, if I remember rightly, something in that order at that speed. You're saying instead of running, you know, and you're also probably taking into account that one 800 gig port on a line card, you know, is a lot, takes up a lot less space, much greater density than it does for eight 100 gig ports as well. Because you're only going to get, you know, six 800 gig ports out of a 48 port 100 gig blade, whereas you're going to get, you know, or whatever the math might be. I think most of the 100 gigs are 32 ports per blade. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So uh, a lot of the the radix in line cards today is thirty six ports. So you you had thirty six by hundred, uh, mm. you had thirty six by four hundred, and now you're mm. going to thirty six by eight hundred. Mm. Uh, so you're packing a lot more bandwidth into the same space. So that comes uh, with density uh, advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, but from a pluggable perspective, uh, some of the pluggables out there might go maybe 25 watts, uh, maybe 30 watts. Uh, we're not talking about long range pluggables that mm -hmm. might consume, uh, you know, uh, even a little bit more. Uh, but when you look at uh, 800 gig pluggables, we're actually talking about uh, 15 to 18 watt each pluggable. Uh, mm -hmm. which is, is a big saving in terms of power consumption. If you put 36 of those in a line card, and let's say your chassis has eight slots, you get a lot of, a lot of power savings just from going to uh, from from 400 to 800. Right? right. And I mean, I'm just sitting here doing the numbers on, like if you're looking at 30% growth in bandwidth consumption per year, the first year it goes from 400 gig to 520, the next year it goes to 670, and you're going to be at 100 gig within what, three, maybe four years. So if bandwidth keeps growing, you're going to need to clock up that that backbone bandwidth. Right, exactly. And and the big advantage here is that you don't need to buy uh, and deploy 800 gig right away. So these mm -hmm. platforms support 100 gig, support 400 gig. So you can make sure that when you're investing in a platform today, it makes sense to go with 800 gigs because that's what's going to give you the longest uh, longevity in your network and you don't need to do any upgrades right. when the so moment So this is comes where the IXPs are looking at it. They're saying, I can put this... 800 gig technology in today, use 100 gig and be ready for 400 gig, ready for 800 gig. Exactly. Right. So that's a useful thing. But you're also saying it's you're getting energy savings. Again, you're saying at this higher bandwidth, when you're using the full capacity, you're burning less power, you're burning the same power per port, but it's eight times faster than 100 gig or two times faster than 400 gig. Right. Uh, and, and the power saving comes from a number of factors. So mm -hmm. I think we we talked a lot about the, the pluggables. But there's also uh, power savings in terms of uh, the density of the components that mm. go into the chipsets. Uh, there's savings from a system level uh, design that that it becomes very, very important when you go to 800 gig. And an example of that is in the latest uh, product that we announced, the FP5 chipset mm. goes into the 7750 SRS uh, family of routers. Mm. Uh, just by upgrading that, we were able to deliver three times the capacity using the same same power envelope, same fence, uh, and that yields 75% uh, savings in terms of relative power consumption. That's really significant because remember, it's not only the heating, but it's also the cooling. So whatever power your device generates, you then have to cool it. So there's two two angles to power consumption. One is the amount of power yeah. you require to drive something, and even then to Power. When you talk about power consumption in a chassis, you've then got to cool the chassis, so you need a certain amount of airflow. But after that, there's a second phase of cooling where the whole data center needs to cool. 
So with the price of electricity and energy more widely getting up and as this, you know, we use more, there's less and less power available on the grid. The whole power thing's become a big problem for telcos or a much more significant problem than it ever has been for telcos and web scalers than it was before. It, it is. I would, I would even go to say that is probably one of the biggest uh, challenges we have today yeah. is to fit what customers need in terms of the power envelopes that uh, they have to work with. Because it, it doesn't matter if we come up with a beautiful box or a, a great solution, but uh, you don't have the, enough power in the customers to to make it run. Mm-hmm. And as you said, power and cooling go hand in hand. So yeah. that's very important. Um, obviously, on, on a pizza box, it's uh, a little bit easier for you to do cooling because you, you have a very small um, a small environment and you know you you, you take your um, your cooling from an airflow perspective that is, is a little bit easier to handle but when you go to bigger chassis especially if you want your chassis like we did to go from 400 gigs to 800 gig without requiring a full upgrade in terms of fans or power uh, you need to make sure you have an architecture that allows you to cool that properly, especially if you're using those new chipsets that are way denser. And if you're putting more transistors in that same chipset, they're going to uh, uh, be hotter, right? They're going to run warmer. Yeah. Uh, and the board itself, the the design of the 800 gigi uh, becomes very important in terms of not only cooling those chipsets, but also cooling those optics, right? Now, I wanted to ask this question, Igor, because there was a comment of what you just said there, which is um, the FP5 is a new silicon. To try and fit inside of that power envelope, which you've just said it's so important to the customers, and to fit inside of the chassis of the box, did we lose anything in that translation? Did you drop anything out to make it fit, or is it just gooder and better? No, we didn't lose anything. So mm. we kept the same design principles that we always had in FP. Mm. And those are essentially a fully programmable data path where you can implement features that uh, don't even exist today. So an example of that that we always mention is segment routing, segment routing v6. So you don't need to put another yeah. uh, pipeline that is capable of implementing those features. Mm. It is fully buffered. You can throw uh, traffic uh, and uh, at all uh, interfaces at the same time, and and it will be fully buffered. So it's fully uh, it line right. So you can run it up to 100% on every port, and it'll still fully. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, you also have the fact that uh, uh, we maintained full compatibility in terms of features from FP4, uh, meaning that if you already run an FP4-based network today and you have all your features when you introduce FP5, you don't lose any features. You actually carry them over yeah. uh, from yeah. day one. Okay, so, so, so I didn't lose good. anything. I've still got all the buffering and the packet programmability that I've had before. It's just a fully right. new advance. On, it's an iteration of the FP4 with a whole bunch of new technology in there. Because as you shrink the die size and the die fork, um, you know, shrink to the, the new form factors, it's just the ability to redesign and advance is significant. I wanted to ask right. about 100 gig CERTES. Now, one of the things that you raised when and, and I looked at on the FP5 is that you're using 100 gig CERTES. Can you explain why that is significant, why that's such a fundamental enabler. Sure. And for those of you that uh, don't know exactly what the term 100 gig CERT is or even CERT is mean, uh, those are the internal inter, um, and internal interconnects uh, inside a chassis uh, between all the different components. So th- those are, very, you know, a lot of lanes that uh, interconnect all, mm-hmm. all of those components. And there are different generations uh, of speeds to interconnect those components. The one we use 
with 800 gig is uh, 100 gig certs uh, to be more specific we use 112 gig certs that's the the rate that we use mm -hmm. and um uh, what that means is that as we move forward in terms of speeds it becomes more and more difficult uh, and more uh, critical to maintain signal integrity meaning that the traces in the circuit boards need to be shorter uh, we need to take care of spurious uh, emissions and, mm -hmm. and all of those uh, electromagnetic uh, issues. And that brings a whole nother level of complexity when designing, for instance, a PCB. All the routing becomes a lot more complex. Uh, and uh, a lot of... Uh, In this case, when you say routing, you mean routing of the traces on the PCB. Routing of the traces. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So Because they actually act you, like antennas at these frequencies. In the traces right. on the motherboard and so then you have to run another trace near it which is a ground to try and draw the uh, signal out right for example yeah the, the, there are many uh, novel techniques that we had to put in place for enabling 100 gig surdes and uh, one of the things that we see is that um, a lot of different solutions out there when doing 100 gig surdes try to tackle the signal integrity problem with uh, a component called the retimer which is essentially a um a repeater mm -hmm. so that means that once you add that repeater you um you make the signal good again and it can go a little bit longer mm -hmm. um but th that also brings some challenges because you're putting more components into the board so that those components bring cost those components uh, consume power and those components can also affect the mtbf of the box so for instance uh, in our design philosophy with fp5 we are completely retimerless so yeah. we don't use any retimers and that's one of the parts of the many parts that help us uh, achieve a very efficient power consumption you know what i chassis. like about that is that's your problem and not mine <laughs> yeah. It's because yeah, so many sure. of the times <laughs> that sort of a problem would end up being my problem i would have to put the box in a special cage or the chassis becomes a it becomes a double double sized card to try and put some rf around it or it needs extra cooling and yet now we're down to the point where you're putting the design effort in um the other thing about 100 gig 800 gig uh sfps is they're not painfully expensive because you're bringing 100 gig certs out to the sfp modules they're not actually doing too much mystical magic to try and encode that signal as well that's right isn't it Right, right. And uh, a lot of these uh, innovations, uh, I always say that we we took that problems to ourselves so that our customers don't need to worry about them, right? Mm. Uh, and SFP 112 uh, is uh, indeed a, a very nice uh, capacity or capability that you could uh, that you could use in those chassis because now since your signaling is already mm. 100 gig, uh, and if you use a single lambda in your optics, uh, you that it means that it's much simpler to implement that conversion from electrical to optical. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means uh, you know those optics are going to be cheaper, but they also are going to consume a lot less power. So just as an example, uh, some of these um, SFP120 pluggables that uh, do a hundred gig, they are consuming uh, roughly less than three and a half watts. For uh, SFP, so it's it, you get a lot of power savings from that new technology. Right now, just one thing I want to cover here is when we talked about a lot of these line cards and switches, they're all in the Nokia seventy seven fifty family, seven seven fifty router family. And so, if you want to go and find out the specs and the details, we'll have some links in the show notes to the seven seventy fifty service router. So, if you want to poke and prod 
you know, what sort of this sort of router looks like that can handle this sort of stuff. You can just go and look that up. Um, jumping back into where we were, I just, the thing that surprised me was that if I wanted to run 800 gig, usually what happens is at the very earliest implementation, we pay way over the price for these, but really they are just normal pricing, like eight times a hundred gig SFPs. And then I've got one 800 gig port. That's a, That was the point I was really trying to make. It's really different. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it we cannot bring to market a system that is completely outside of a market price, right? Mm. So there's there's an expected market price. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, there's also some value that we add here, uh, and we believe we have a very good uh, proposition from that perspective. And uh, all of the customers um, that uh, are working with us today, just from the density perspective, the increased density and the power savings, uh, the TCO becomes very compelling when you go to 800 gig. What about, and this is going to be a, sound like a crazy question, when we've just gone 100, 200, 400, 800, what about 1.6? Because the next step after 800 gig is 1.6 terabits, right? Are we ready for that? Right. Yeah. So we at Nokia, we are ready for that. In fact, we already have the chipset today in FP5 completely capable of doing 1.6 tera. Mm. Uh, the, the way the industry works is there there is a uh, an MSA, an agreement uh, that gets developed. So mm. that MSA is still not finalized, but when it, it, it does, uh, we will be ready to support that right away. I think that's crazy. We're already at yeah. serious, like we're seriously at 1.6 terabits per second. That just blows my mind. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thanks very much to Nokia for sponsoring today's show. Thanks very much to Igor Giangrossi for joining us and to talk about one of the weirdest things I think that we've actually got going in networking, which is just how do you signal 800 gigabits per second on a wire and some of the things that you need to think about. And thanks very much to Nokia for sponsoring today's show. Uh, We talked about before how this is all in the Nokia 7750 service router. There is an entire page on 800 giggy routing on the Nokia website. And you can get there by going to nokia.ly 800 GE dash routing. That's nokia.ly slash 800 GE dash routing. And that page will then take you to um, where you want to be to get that information. Or you can check the show notes on the Packet Pushers website. As always, there's lots of information there. There's a bunch of links uh, to the Nokia FP5 network processor, sort of explaining how an ASIC and what features are in that ASIC inside of the box and what web scale networking looks like at 100, at 800 gigabits per second, if you can believe that or not. Now, as always, don't forget to follow us on the internet. You can hit us up on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Tell your friends about us. It's so helpful to us if you could do that. Uh, and as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>